Hello and welcome to Weird Together, the show where we celebrate the latest and greatest in independent horror films. I'm Brennan Storr, host of the Ghost Story Guys podcast. I'm Joseph Camo, host of The Cardinal Rule. We're not critics. We're not experts. We're just weird. Together. Joseph, my friend, how are you doing? You know, I think I'm doing okay. You know, getting towards the end of the semester, you know, waiting for summer to get here so I can, you know, have all these goals that I'm going to swear to get done and then come August realize I haven't done any of them. That is a great privilege of summer, though, I think, because I remember even as a kid getting out of getting out of school on, you know, June, whatever, walking out into the park, especially in high school, because in high school, you're aware there are things you could do. You've seen movies, you know, you've heard Summer of 69. There is possibility out there. And you walk out the door of the school and you think, oh, you're like, you're like Judd Nelson in Breakfast Club, fist to the sky, you're going to take on the summer. And then it's all of a sudden it's September 1st and you've done nothing. <laughs> so, no, I, I, yeah. I, I, this is one of our great privileges. This is actually the, the, the through line that connects us to our youth. So you need to, you need to cherish this lack of accomplishment and hold it to your breast because it is in fact our youth. It's the Indeed, only thing keeping us there. I need to embrace it. Yeah. Also, I don't think someone who has two kids uh, and is a professor and also has a successful YouTube show is doing nothing. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to check you there too. That's fair. I need to lower the bar a bit then apparently. I don't know what else you could be doing. Uh, you know, <laughs> like robbing banks, holding up stagecoaches. I don't know why crime is so heavy on the list. But anyways, let's not dwell on that. How about you? I'm good. Yes, I, I'm counting down my time here in Montreal. I'm headed back home on May 28th, back to Victoria for a while. And really, I've just been watching movies. Uh, I've taken this improv class, which I'm really enjoying. Met some cool people there. And uh, I've got this trip coming up, which I'm really looking forward to. Basically, in a month from now, I think it's May 20th or 21st. You'd have to look it up. But at Little Ghost Books in Toronto, uh, and this is, this is great knowledge for any uh, Toronto-based fans we have out there, there is going to be a celebration marking the 10-year anniversary of Andrew Piper's novel, The Demonologist. And Andrew Piper is a Toronto-based author of horror fiction. And there is going to be a reading, a signing, and the whole thing will be emceed by Steve Stred, who is an extreme horror author out of Edmonton. And Steve has become a friend of mine. We met when I interviewed him for Largely the Truth, my talk show. And it turned out we were both from very close to the same area, and we didn't realize it. He's a great dude. And it's going to be a ton of fun, I think. So, again, it's the weekend of May 20th, thereabouts. And if we have anyone here who is in the Toronto area, I will be there. So if you want to come by, say hi. I mean, it's not my show. So don't, let's not, you know, we're not going to be rude and interrupt the, uh, what's going on. But if you want to come by, say hi and just listen to a, a very talented author, read a very cool book, which I think is supposed to be a movie at some point. I'm fairly sure the film rights have sold. Anyways. Come to Little Ghost Books the weekend of May 20th. And again, you'll have to look up the times and such uh, on their website. But if you're in Toronto, you'll know Little Ghost Books. And yeah, that's really the most exciting thing I got going on. I mean, we did have an aborted show, which is kind of funny. <laughs> right. Now, we're not going to say what the movie was, but we will be referencing it several times in this movie, pardon me, in this show, because we, we picked a film and the more we learned about the people who made it, the less we wanted to talk about the movie. That's, that's all we're going to say. And if we ever get to the point where we have a Patreon or something like that, uh, that episode, that car crash of an episode <laughs> will, be a, will be a patron bonus. Yes, if it doesn't get us sued. <laughs> I, think, I think we don't say anything objectionable in it. I didn't finish editing it because it was just 
bad. And then <laughs> when I when I like learned more about the filmmakers and I thought, I don't want to promote anything they're making, I just never bothered to finish it. So I, I'd have to go through and, and sort of peruse it. But I figure if it's behind a paywall, we should be fine. Yeah, well, I think what, what this film now offers us is this sort of baseline to compare of, okay, on a scale of zero to 10 of creativity, where zero equals this film that we are not naming, right? Where does the film that we are going to be talking about now rate, right? So we've got a baseline for what a zero actually would be in a film that involved absolutely zero original creative thought, which is, I think, valuable. What do you think, Brent? That's genius. I think that is, that is officially <laughs> making lemonade out of that <laughs> giant lemon that I, that I watched twice. I'm not happy about this, Joseph. <laughs> <laughs> I think you want your money back for that, right? I want my time back. Not just my time. I want, not just for the movie. I want the time back that I spent listening to the podcasts these folks have put out. Uh, but I'm not going to say anymore. Again, we're going to be, we try to be positive on this show. And, and so we're just going to, we're going to skate over that pond. Uh, because we are talking about a film on, tonight that I did like. And, you know, the, and, and that's something that we like to, to make sure people know. We, we watch a bunch of movies before we find one that we want to talk about on here. You know, we don't just pick a movie and then go because I don't want to slam a movie. And so I really enjoyed tonight's film. And that film is Freeze. Freeze tells the story of the good ship Innsmouth and its captain, Roland Mortimer, bound for the Arctic. Mortimer is in search of his friend, Captain Striner, missing these past two years. Mortimer is so driven to rescue his friend and mentor that he ignores repeated warnings about the gathering ice pack, and soon the Innsmouth becomes stuck in a polar wasteland that is not as empty as it first appears. And that is a story of Freeze, directed by the prolific, shockingly prolific, I might say, Charlie Steeds. But of course, before we can break down the film, Joseph, as anyone who listens to this show knows, you don't watch any film in a vacuum. In fact, you take every film you've ever seen in there. And so before we can talk about Freeze, we got to take apart the baggage. All right, Joseph, what, if any, baggage did you have going into Freeze? I actually had no baggage on this one. I was not familiar with the film or the filmmaker, and you didn't tip me off really to anything on this. You didn't really give me any clues other than it was more worthwhile than the film that will remain unnamed. <laughs> I was going to say, the only baggage Joseph went in was the festering resentment <laughs> that I made him watch the other movie. <laughs> Indeed. That's fair. No, I was the same way. I had very little baggage, aside from the fact that I knew it was Lovecraft-inspired. Of course, anyone listening to my description, will recognize Innsmouth and uh, start making their own connections. Of course, Lovecraft mostly wrote about the Antarctic, but, uh, and uh, that was from what I understand. I don't, I don't, I actually don't think there are mountains in the Arctic. Uh, but again, we're not, let's not get hung up on this. Uh, but yeah, so I knew it was Lovecraft inspired. And of course, Lovecraft adaptations are hit and miss. For every uh, Dagon or Color Out of Space, there are five more, which are garbage. And I, I, Joseph, I blanked. I was trying to think of some shitty right. Lovecraft adaptations. And I mean, they're out there. Believe me, I've seen them. But for some reason, mm. my brain just went, no, no, we're not. No, we're not playing this game. You made us watch that movie twice. <laughs> but yeah, so Lovecraft adaptations are, are hit and miss. And we'll talk more about that when we get into the Toctagon. But so that was the only thing I really knew because I wasn't familiar with Charlie Steeds at all. I've since watched uh, one of his other films. I'm going to watch some more tonight. So I, really, I went in kind of... Again, other than the festering resentment of having watched the other film twice, I went in pretty clean. 
And consequently, I think I had a pretty, a pretty good experience. And I am very curious to hear what you thought. And of course, there's only one place we can have that conversation. That's the Toctagon. Welcome to the Toctagon. Two men enter, two men leave. So, here we are in the Toctagon, and I am very curious to know what you thought of Freeze. Well, let me start with sort of a sort of a reverse baggage because and I didn't mention this in the baggage segment because I, I think it's maybe a little more fitting here, but not actually knowing that it was a Lovecraftian influenced film actually kind of gave me a different frame of reference. And I didn't actually probably appreciate it as much watching it as I do retrospectively. Oh, um, interesting. You know, I, I'm not, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not really well versed in Lovecraftian lore. I mean, I'm familiar with Cthulhu. I've, you know, I've seen bits and pieces here, but I've just never really got into that. So I was not familiar with Dagon and the Deep Ones. And uh, obviously after the fact, though, after I watched the film, I, I did some reading on it and, and came across that. So th- some of the things maybe I didn't like about it at first, maybe I like a little better now that I understand that about the film. And then maybe there are some different opinions I have on it. You know, I want to start that it does seem like a very close kind of derivative or adaptation of Lovecraftian lore. I mean, if you look uh, at the, you know, the, the creatures, the deep ones, the ichthyoids, uh, they very much reminisce sort of Lovecraftian fan art of the deep ones, right? You know, it's almost as though, and I wouldn't be surprised if this is how it went down. Um, when they designed the costumes, they said, let's make them look as close to or as true to the deep ones as possible. So that was interesting. Um, I think there's good and bad to that. But my the first thing is, again, knowing that gave me a different perspective. And I wonder how much of, you know, the tip, the person who's just kind of stumbling across this film, right? You know, just kind of checking out indie horror films. If they're not aware of that, I wonder how that impacted men. Maybe they didn't appreciate it as much as they might have if they were aware of that. I find that fascinating because, you know, I, I watch so many horror movies. And I'm not a massive Lovecraft fan, to be honest. I, I, I think I was talking about, about this with a friend of mine the other day. Um, I think Lovecraft's ideas are interesting. I think the world he created for other people to play in is interesting. I'm not a huge fan of his writing and, or, his, or his racism, especially the racism. <laughs> yeah, not so much that either. Yeah. But again, I think the, the, the universe he built, I think that's kind of cool. And there are, the, or at least there are some, there's some cool stuff in it. You know, it's a cool template for artists to kind of jump off from. So, but I, I'm so accustomed to that, that it, it didn't even occur to me that someone wouldn't look at like a fish man and go, oh yeah, this is a Lovecraft thing. Or the fact <laughs> that the ship is called Innsmouth, you know, or that uh, Striner's ship is called the Ibon. You know, like I just, to me, these are, oh yeah, I, I hold these truths to be self-evident. You know, obviously this is, <laughs> right. oh yeah, sure. No, Lovecraft, yeah, Fishmen, Deep Ones. Yeah, no, that, that makes sense. So it's, it's, again, yeah, it's fascinating for me to meet someone to whom those are not such common, uh, they're, they're, they're not as common. Frames of reference. Frames of reference. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's really, really interesting. Because again, I'm just, I'm just unaccustomed to that. I don't know. I don't know if that would make it easier or better. I mean, I feel like if you... I don't know. I think, I think you have to be on board with the level of film. Like one of the things I've learned from reading interviews with Charlie Steeds is that, you know, he makes these films at a very, you know, pretty low budget. I don't, I don't know exactly what his first film was. 
what was it made for? I want to say $2,000 or something. It was you know, very, mm. very, very low budget. Of course, this is not made for that. You know, this was shot, I want to say in, if I remember correctly, it's Norway. And, okay. uh, or at least the exteriors were. And uh, so, you know, th- there's real money at play. And, and his films look good. You know, I got, that was something I want to talk about, talk about a little bit later is just, you know, compared to the movie we, we've, you know, that w- the movie which will not be named. And, and honestly, a lot of small budget films, like th- this, his movies look good. You know, they're, they're very stylish. Mm-hmm. Into, like the lighting is, you know, they actually put some work into shadows and things like this. But I think if you're not on board with a fish man right away, and you're not cool at looking at the Fishman costumes and thinking, okay, you know, those are, you know, they're Fishman costumes, but considering what they had to work with, those are good Fishman costumes. If you're not the kind of person to kind of be able to roll with that, then I think the Lovecraft stuff is not going to help you. So, you know, the costumes were, you know, it's a low budget, but there are some other films I've seen in our kind of journey through low budget films that had similar limitations that found ways to make it work better um using shadow suspense not revealing you know the 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 creature in its full you know a well-lit visage right right um like like you know the scenes with the ichthyoids where they were in the shadow in the cave worked for me so much better you know where you just heard them clicking and the one guys are eating stuff in his face with bread and you just see them in the shadows and they're kind of there but you have to look and they're just if they had taken an approach like that from the onset and not had the very beginning of the film the immediate revealed oh look there's the dudes in the rubber fish man costumes okay we see what this right. is and continue to do that right for me, at least, and you know, and I'm you know, if I, as a viewer, I would have much rather they played the shadows more throughout, and I think those costumes would have had much more impact if they did it that way. Uh, what are your What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I, I I dug the costumes. I mean, obviously, yeah, shortcomings. I was wondering about this though, and, and this kind of brings me back again to you know to uh, Voldemort in that. When we were doing the research for, for talking about that film, something the creators were talking about was having to have like a really punchy opening minute and a half, two minutes, because you're trying to hook people watching it mostly on, on advertised driven video on demand. So they're not paying anything for it. So they're, they're quite happy to turn it off if it doesn't hook them in the amount of time that they spend watching it you know, between the, the screen and their phone. And so I wondered if the big reveal of the creatures, like just straight up here is Fishman in your face. I wondered if that was sort of a, uh, as you've taught me about YouTube, we got to get people, you got to get people's interested, interested right away. And I wondered if, if that was it. That's a really interesting point because if you think about it and look back, we saw something similar in Reap Town, right? The, oh, of the, course. Yeah. Whatever yeah. the blood changer, right? Blood was shifter. Very early in the film, right? You see it. And, and to me, that was was kind of, I don't know, just not really great part of the film for me, right? It, it, it kind of brought it down for me. But, but that's an interesting frame of reference to look at it through because when you talk about, you know, content creation and algorithms, right? You know, yeah, you've got to hook someone early. And if you don't, you lose them and they don't watch. And, and with so many of these independent films being, as you talked about, release for video on demand and streaming services, 
you know, if someone starts, especially on a, you know, where you, films that you're able to watch for free, you know, as we were able to watch this one, um, it's it's that, you know, the the viewing is even that much more important. Right. You know, if a film is being sold for, you know, five, ten dollars and you can have a interesting title and, a, you know, a kind of a thumbnail or of it, you might be able to dupe some people. And, you know, but with with something where you're going to have someone actually have to watch and continue watching and they have they they're not invested into it monetarily uh, and you want them to continue watching even more so for that reason. That's an interesting point. And maybe for me, that doesn't work, but some other audiences maybe even come to expect that, right? If they don't get that early on. So that, you know, and that's an interesting point. Maybe this is just a matter of taste. I like slow burns, right? I like things that, that reveal things slowly and later, but that makes a lot of sense. While why that would maybe be a motivation. Now, the question to me is, is, is that a situation where the technology is is downgrading the art, right? You know, in in a sense, right? Because there's something, this long kind of standing history of great storytelling and great art using subtlety, and that's kind of being thrown out the window. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? I don't know. Yeah, I, I've been I've been thinking about this ever since again the last recording when we were talking about algorithm films kind of being built. Uh, around algorithms and, or, you know, it's, I, I, algorithms, that's such a, it's such a lazy way to put it, but films being structured in such a way to keep eyes on them, essentially. And I, I was thinking about that and I was, I was thinking, is it any different from, from other kinds of content delivery? You know, I mean, when, when movies came to home video, people said, okay, well, this is going to change the way, you know, people view films. And, and certainly, you know, I mean, with pan and scan, it kind of fucked up composition and stuff like that. I, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I don't like it because it, it feels like the tail wagging the dog. But at the same time, without these avenues for filmmakers to have their stuff seen, we don't get freeze. You know, we don't get um, the other film I watched from Steeds was uh, an American. No, sorry, a werewolf in a werewolf in England. And I really enjoyed it. You know, it's kind of a fun horror comedy about werewolves. And it was good, but again, without these these very niche platforms and these ways for them to access audiences, we don't get to see those movies. And, you know, recently I, I saw a tweet, actually I think it might have been something Steeds retweeted from the filmmaker Jim Cummings, who directed uh, Wolf of Snow Hollow, which is a lot of fun. And, you know, he, he was, I think he tweeted to the uh, Rotten Tomatoes audience and critic scores of his three films. And they're all, you know, again, they're very well received. And he said, uh, basically, you know, I've done all this. I've released these films. They've been, you know, they've made a little bit of money. They've been critically successful. Audiences like them. And he said, I am still basically a, a blue collar filmmaker. You know, I'm still just trying to put together my next project. He said, the big guys are not coming. They don't come and save you. You have to figure your shit out and you have to find your audience on your own. And so, you know, in that environment, I mean, we, we wouldn't get the things we're getting. So I guess we kind of have to, you know, it's either we get the slightly compromised version of the thing or we don't get the thing at all. Something that, you know, in, in my profession as a sociology professor that we, I often think about and talk about is how technology changes human life, culture more than anything else. You know, industrial revolution, tech, uh, computer revolutions, um, social media, like how we live life is changed historically over the long arc and the short arc more by technology than anything else. 
and you see it even in micro level things like art or, or you know or meso level things kind of you know like art forms and such and and sometimes that change is good and sometimes that change is is not great but we still adapt so and that change sometimes happens in ways that we didn't anticipate you know really unanticipated consequences of those kinds of change and you know talking about how the change of medium Film used to be an event, right? You go to the movie theater and it sure. was a big event. So it was, there was something grand about a movie. And then home video, you know, had good and bad, right? It made things accessible and rewatchable, right? Um, but it also made, uh, you know, maybe watered down form film, like quality, right? That to where, oh, well, re re released directly the home video kinds of films came out, which weren't always great. But at the same time, it also democratized it, right? Made it easier for people to get, right? So it's a mixed bag. Um, and, you know, and stream, with streaming services, right? You know, well, what has that done? Well, a lot of different things. It's created new players in the market, right? Some, some great stuff is being done by places like Netflix and, you know, HBO's original content that that's, that's as good or better than major network things. Um, and, you know, there's been some interesting things that from that that help with long arc storytelling, you know, that you can. Yeah, I, and I think a great example of this is, for example, um, HBO recently had concluded a series that I watched, um, His Dark Materials, right? Sure. Which uh, and I really enjoyed it. I had not read the books. I know that they were widely read. Uh, but, you know. A decade or two before that, there was a film, The Golden Compass, that from what I've never saw, but I heard was shit. It was. Uh, that was really a poor, right? A really bad adaptation because I'm assuming in part because they tried to fit everything into a two and a half hour, whatever runtime, whereas streaming media that with the budgets to do more cinematic pieces are able to take something like that and give it its, you know, what it deserves, like three seasons or four seasons, um, so in some sense, some of these streaming services have also given us some really good art form, long form storytelling that in the past either would be done on a network television, net, uh, major network with maybe less budget and less freedom or in a film with all the budget and freedom, but not enough time. So, but now we're getting some of this algorithmic thing, which is sort of maybe some of the negative side of that. So, you know, is it, how much of it is good and how much of it is bad? Maybe it's just both. Uh, I'll let you jump in here because I got more, but I've been going for a while. So, yeah. Well, something, I mean, I, I think it's important to make the distinction between something that like Netflix or HBO is making and the level we're talking about with Freeze. Because, I mean, net, I mean Netflix, those guys put tens of millions of dollars. Even their low budget stuff is 10, 12. Like I think Point Blank was one of their, their, their like Netflix originals uh, directed by Joe Lynch. And I think the, the budget for that was still 10 or 12 million. And I would be shocked if the budget for uh, Freeze was even a million. I would suspect probably like half a million. But I mean, I could be wrong. Charlie Steeds, if you're listening, I would love to know. Um, maybe, maybe, I don't know. Adam Green shot Hatchet for, for like 400,000. And he shot that in like nine days with a bunch of his friends. So maybe 500,000 is a bit too low. But um, either way, yeah, I, I just think it, it, that's an important distinction to make is that uh, like we're talking. Yeah, and very, very with the Netflix thing, the, just to clarify, the Netflix kind of thing for me was more the long arc storytelling 
is kind of the, the the thing that I think that has brought that's kind of different, right? Sure, sure, sure. But you're right. There's definitely <clears throat> to to expect a, a small budget film to compete with the resources of Netflix. You're 100 percent right that there's just not an even playing field there. But you're right in both the democratization. I mean, if you look at when uh, now again, I, I'm not, I don't have a great knowledge base on this, but when home video first started, there was a, a real need. Like the technology came before the films. So there was sort of a gap in the market and there was this really, uh, I don't know if the word, what the right word would be, but there was a, a mar like a, a flood of shot on VHS horror movies. And so there's stuff like Sledgehammer, Don't Go in the Woods, made specifically for that market. I think the McPherson tape is another one. And, you know, so the, yeah, these films don't exist without that emerging technology. But at the same time, those filmmakers never went on to do anything major. You know, the guy who made Sledgehammer didn't go on to make a Friday the 13th sequel, best of my knowledge. Jim Bryan just made Jim Bryan movies. And so I, I, I feel like it, it, you end up with that same sort of ghettoization uh, like we've got now with the streaming guys. You've got guys like, yeah, like Charlie Steed's making these, you know, he's, he's made something like 12 or 13 movies, some crazy amount of movies, and he's still in his 20s. But they're, they're kind of running to, like, yeah, to, to sort of get market share. And in, it's so having to, you know, possibly structure their films in such a way as to keep maximum numbers of eyeballs on it at the expense of traditional storytelling methods. And we talked about this with Skinamarink. You know, is, is, is the technology going to permanently change the art form or is it only going to change it at a certain level? You know, are there people with, who are like getting, yeah, they're getting Netflix money and they can do whatever the fuck they want. Uh, mind you, even Netflix stuff though, like that's, that's pretty heavily algorithmic. I remember, or algorithm based. I remember House of, House of Cards. That was, that was remade because that was a British series. It was remade because Netflix looked at all their viewer data and kind of went, ah, people like these kinds of things. And so that, that's sort of how that, that came to be. So even at that level, there is a lot of, you know, what well, we're going to let the technology dictate what it is we're making. Yeah. You know, I want to build on something you're saying there because I think you make a couple good points that I think come together here. You're talking about the different levels in terms of how things change and certain things are maybe, you know, you've got uh, going to be more algorithmic. Certain things might be more traditional. But you also mentioned the filmmakers talking about that, you know, I'm out here having to find my own audience and 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 do things on my own. You know, the big the big studios and net art networks are not uh coming to save me. And, and I think there's a, an interesting parallel to the content creator space that I, I do things in outside of this. You know, I do, I do NFL content creation for a specific team, the Arizona Cardinals. And one of the things I've observed in that space is you've got the major networks, the sports networks that do all their sports programming, but they're still you know, this, this audience that's interested in an individual like me, who's a fan of a team doing my own small scale YouTube thing, even though I don't have the resources or the connections or the production capacity of a major network. And I thought a lot about, well, what is that, right? Why would someone watch my stuff instead of um, a major network? And there's a couple reasons. One is because I niche down and I, I'm a fan of the same specific team they're a fan of, and also because of accessibility. They can contact me and reach out to me, and I'm going to respond on like a major personality. So what's the connection here, right? Well, I wonder if, if at this level of the independent films like we're talking about here, 
a film like this, for example, while it doesn't have the resources of a major release or something that's even done on a major streaming service, maybe there's there's just these audiences that are drawn to something like this and will even, you know, kind of ignore the flaws or or be gracious in terms of the flaws or the limitations because the the filmmaker is making things that that's a niche they particularly want. The, and maybe the filmmaker's accessible. You can tweet at them and they'll respond, you know, unlike maybe a major, right? And then, you know, for example, in this film, if you are just a, if you are a person who absolutely loves the Lovecraft universe and you're not one of those sort of, you know, uh, gatekeepers that we talked about earlier, you don't care that the, the rubber uh, deep one suits don't look perfect. You don't care that there's a few things that the limited budget has constrained. You're just glad, right, that there's this film made about something you're interested in by this filmmaker, Charlie Steeds, who is not a major net, you know, major uh, doing anything with a major production studio. And that's the niche, right? The, there's something accessible and specific for you there. Yeah, I mean, that's partially why I watch these movies. I, know, I mean, not because the filmmakers are accessible, because I'm I mean, as someone who, you know, obviously a content creator myself, have had some success with Ghost Story Guys, I don't, unless I've got a reason to reach out to someone, you know, I'm not just going to go say, dude, I love your stuff. I mean, I always appreciate it when people do that, but it, it's not, I don't, I'm not wired that way. I just don't, yeah, I don't know, I, I don't, maybe it's ego, I don't know, but I don't, I don't do that. But I, it's like when I used to do my radio show, you know, I used to have a, a weekly music show on FM radio. And I, I reached a point where I would exclusively play independent artists I would find on Bandcamp. And I would look for artists who'd only sold it, like one or two, maybe even no records. You know, not, we're not talking like, oh, you know, I, I was buying guys who are, you know, like Guar is on Bandcamp. I mean, I would play Guar, but, but I would seek out people who no one was buying their records as long as it was good. Because I think it's, I think we've reached this point in culture and I'm, I, this is one of my favorite saws. So I might even have talked about this on the show before, but we've reached this point in culture where we, we just constantly give our attention to things which have been around forever. You know, these institutional things. And, and I think attention is energy. Attention is power. You know, that's how things grow. And so, you know, we pay it. And I, yeah, I'm certain I've mentioned this on the show before, but like, I like paying attention to independent films because that is someone who is passionate about what they're doing. And that's not to say that like James Wan or Leigh Whannell isn't passionate because they are, but they're, they've got enough collective energy from people that they're self-sustaining at this point. But as, as a small scale content, as a small scale artist, I know how hard it is to get momentum. And I know how much it means so much more when people engage with what you do. Cause when you reach a certain level, you're just like, well, yeah, of course you're going to engage with what I do. Cause I'm who I am, you know, it, it, even, and even if you're humble, I think when you reach a certain level of success, you just, you just come to expect it. That's what it is. So I, I like, you know, again, I'm willing to overlook, eh, maybe the fish men look a little rubbery. Oh, who gives a shit? You know, because this was made by people who love movies. And, and that's the problem I had with, with, you know, again, with Voldemort is that movie was, the, was made by people who want to be famous. They don't give a shit about movies. They just, they don't. They, they, they said as much in the stuff I listened to. You know, it, it's, it's very workmanlike, okay, that, well, we're going to combine this and this because, you know, again, audiences like this and this and this, but not in a way that they're trying to produce an experience. More that, again, they're just trying to leverage what they have to become financially successful. And again, that, that itself is not a cardinal sin. I, I want to make money too, but there is no passion for film. Whereas reading interviews with Steeds, this is a guy who loves movies. 
you know, um, he mentioned uh, one director I remember he specifically name checked was Lucio Fulci. And I, I read that after I watched A Werewolf in England. And I remember there's, a, there's an eyeball scene in Werewolf in England where, an eyeball, where a werewolf plucks a guy's eye out. And I thought, that's got to be a Fulci reference or a Fulci like homage because Fulci had an eyeball thing. And it was. You know, I read the interview, he likes Fulci, I'm like, oh yeah, that was intentional. And so then you realize you're in the hands of someone who likes the genre, who, you know, he talks about how uh, he builds, they build their own sets. Like, again, uh, Freeze was shot on a Norwegian glacier, and it was cold as fuck. You know, I, I watched an interview with, uh, with Ricardo Frietas, I think it's right, at um, uh, Fright Fest, where the film debuted in October of last year. And he was talking about how it was just so goddamn cold, you know, and uh, there was another actor, he plays Gideon, and he was saying that uh, it reached a point where he noticed his breath wasn't steaming anymore. And he asked someone, why can't I see my breath? And they said, oh, it's because you're, you're so cold, your body can't get hot enough to produce that effect anymore. And so these guys, like they went through it, but they, watching the interviews with them, and I mean, okay, they're on the red carpet, but. These are not people who are so conditioned to the red carpet. They know how to bullshit, I assume. They just seem to be passionate about the experience of having made it and to have enjoyed making it. And again, I feel like that comes across in the final product. And, and I, structurally, I think the film is solid. I mean, okay, we, like the, sure, we, uh, we're agreed on, on the fish suits, a little bit rubbery. But I mean, I was, when I was rewatching it this afternoon, I was just thinking of how well they sketched out the characters and how quickly. There is just the opening scene, where did my note here? Right, yeah, the character introduction of Marlowe and Redgrave, or of Spriggs and Redgrave. It was so clear. Like, immediately, you know who Redgrave is. You know that he's a romantic, and that he's an artist, and he's probably too soft for the kind of voyage that they're on. You learn that Spriggs is a greedy bully. You know, he's one of the, and, and they're, they're immediate types. Like, you, you and I were talking, we're going to do the film Bury the Bride, the, the new Spider-One film on here soon. And one of the things that I appreciated about that film was like he, he, the characters felt like people you could meet. They were well sketched out characters. And I felt that way about Spriggs. I felt like Spriggs was someone I've met. You know, he's threatened by Redgrave because Redgrave has talent. And he tries to denigrate it by saying, well, I can do anything if I have the time to do it. And I can't tell you how many fucking guys like that I've met. Guys who've never done anything with their lives, but who will tell you, well, yeah, I... I can, what, you do that? Oh, I could do it if I had the time. Like, there was even some dick who commented on a, a Lukelore video. And for those of you who don't know, Lukelore is a podcast that I produce for a screenwriter from the UK. His name's Luke Greensmith. He's a really good guy, very talented folklorist. And I missed a correction in one of the edits. He basically just uh, tripped over his word and kind of went, all right, and tried again. I just missed it. I just missed cutting it out. It was harmless. But some dick in the comments on the YouTube video said, Oh, this X at this time gives me uh, renewed confidence that I should be creating something too. I thought you are the worst kind of parasite because this guy has a successful show. He's been making for a couple of years now. You know, he's got a couple thousand listeners. Again, not the biggest show, but still, he did it himself. He made one mistake and all of a sudden you're thinking, oh yeah, uh, yeah look at that. Look at that mistake he made. I could do that. Anyone could do No, 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 you can't. Because you're the guy on the internet saying these things. You're a loser. And Spriggs is a loser. And you recognize that. And, and I just love that this film 
and and uh, what's the American or I keep wanting to say American Werewolf in London, which I'm I'm sure is an intentional reference, but American uh, fuck I did it again, Werewolf in England, it's the same. He he writes real people. I mean, sometimes he goes over the top, but he writes characters that you think, oh no, I, these people are behaving in a way that makes sense to me, and after a while you start to care about them. Yeah, I think what you're what you're saying really some can be summed up in having a film having and a filmmaker having a soul in what they do, you know, that the art form has a soul. Like the reincarnated <laughs> right, grasshopper you know, people uh, we're talking about. Yeah. Yes. From the other film um, that we're not reviewing. Correct. But but in all seriousness, like when you're dealing with a low budget film, there's going to be flaws. We've t- we, we've established that we get it right. And that's that's just for that for the amount of money you're working with. You can't do something that's as polished. Right. So when we watch these films, I'm always looking for what shines through, right? What is it that this filmmaker's doing that is that is exceptional, that's remarkable, that's artistic, right? So even though yes, we're talking about the the costumes and we also recognize that that, you know, is a limitation born of uh, of the budget, right? But the the things that are done and you you've talked to, we talked about the acting is is solid, yeah. right? You know, for the most part uh, the film, the, the cinematography looks professional. Maybe there's a few parts that, you know, like the, the ship was clearly a static image that was felt not great to scale. Little details like that sure. that are a budget detail. But there's things about it that come through. The commitment to the Lovecraftian lore, you know, that is, a, that is certainly a labor of love. Um, you know, the, the, as you talked about, establishing the characters quickly without relying on too many stereotypes or cliches right and and the other film we talked about they established characters that were very one-dimensional like they they were like they're they they were establishing stereotypes like literally the, their characters they were establishing were stereotypes oh, they even, they even this film it is set, right right literally and so many films that we've we've talked about here you know we you referenced that uh, spider one has a film coming out we did one on allegory and you saw the nods to the uh, the filmmakers he loved that came through in the film uh, and you do see that in freeze and you see that in some of the better films uh that we have have discussed and i think that's uh, the thing that that this has that if you're trying to make a film that's t- too much driven by the algorithm potentially and lacks that soul that's when you get this other <laughs> film that will be unnamed. yes yeah that's exactly it uh, so obviously we're getting towards the end of the end towards the end of things here because we want to try and keep it uh, as close to an hour as we can. But I do want to mention we were talking about performances. I want to specifically single out uh, Rory Wilton as Captain Mortimer because I I thought he was very believable as a leader of men. He really I thought projected that that captain's gravitas. But even better than that, once the ship is locked in ice, they set out looking for any kind of help. They find Captain Striner. His crew is dead. He is very much gone, you know, Colonel Kurtz and gone mad and plans to bring the ichthyoids back to mankind with using the Innsmouth. And of course, Mortimer has done this whole thing because he, he thought Striner was trying to cross the Arctic and was trying to save his friend. And then he discovers that, no, Striner knew about the ichthyoids. He knew about the fishmen and was actually going there to find them. He lied about the Arctic. And there's this moment when Mortimer is so betrayed by this visibly, the look on his face, it's not obvious. You know, it's, it's not overplayed. 
But there's this, this beautiful moment of, of like upset and betrayal. And I decided perfectly nailed that, that thing that can happen with grown men where we break each other's hearts in ways that you forget you still can have your heart broken. And it, it kind of sends you in a lot of ways back to being a little kid because all of a sudden you're, you're this vulnerable person who had this relationship that meant a lot to you, but maybe you can't, you can't phrase it that way. I mean, in the, in the time period the film is set, you know, men were a lot more open about these things. Like I remember reading uh, Team of Rivals about Abraham Lincoln and they have all these selections of letters and they're such florid letters, you know, like they're full of, of open affection and it's not sexual affection. It's not romantic affection. It's just platonic affection, but men were allowed to express these things then in a way that, you know, when you look at the correspondence in her follow-up book, The Bully Pulpit about Teddy Roosevelt, uh, the letters are much more guarded. The, the letters between men are much more guarded, we, much more similar to what we see now. I mean, still more open than now, but, you know, much more guarded than, than had been. But still, these, these male friendships mean a lot to us. And when we disappoint each other, that takes a toll. And, and again, it just, all of that for me was, was encapsulated in, in this moment on, on uh, Wilton's face when he discovers that Striner deceived him, you know, and uh, yeah, I just, I'm, because I'm, I, I've, I'm very interested in the friendship dynamics of men. I've always kind of found that interesting. And so uh, it just, for me that I really zeroed in on that moment and thought, yep, you know, he, he nailed that particular I mean, he nailed a lot of stuff, but I really felt that moment uh, worked. It's always interesting how, again, good art always hits notes with you that may not, may or may not have been what was intended by the artist, but there's enough solid something there, right, that is presented that if you, the viewer, have something that is important to you and, you know, that resonates with you, that art can kind of trigger that or spur that, right? Uh, so that's really interesting that, that that stood out to you for sure. And that's one of the things I love about doing the show is that we get to, to kind of look at things, which I, you know, I think a lot of people might just, again, kind of hand wave away or, or you know, watch and go, well, that was fun and give them a more thorough examination. And again, I, I think in, in particular, I think Freeze deserves it. I think Freeze, again, is a, a really admirable, fun, high horror adventure film shot for, I mean, Del Toro, because it's very similar, it's similar at least to the plot of Lovecraft's in, um, At the Mountains of Madness. And in fact, Striner even refers to where they are as these mountains of madness, which I kind of loved. But Guillermo Del Toro was trying to make a, a film version of that for years and couldn't get it off the ground because he was budgeting at something like $150 million. And I thought, well, Steeds has made this really solid movie, really fun, you know, creepy in places, tense in places movie for a fraction of that. And again, I just, I just think it's, it's something we're celebrating. I mean, I, I think the word that keeps coming back to me when I think about this film is ambitious. The limited budget, but still they're telling this grand story, right? And, and doing, uh, you know, really good acting and, and, and the set pieces. So yeah, it's something about this just felt really ambitious to me. Yeah. I, I'm a, and I'm a huge fan of ambition. I maybe don't have a ton of it myself, but I admire it in <laughs> other people. I'm, I'm always a, a fan of people whose reach exceeds their grasp. I think that's a, that's a noble thing. And again, I think by and large, Freeze accomplishes what it sets out to do. And the other film I watched from, from him, uh, the werewolf film, same thing. Uh, it's, 
solid. I mean, it, it does the same thing. You, you see the werewolves maybe too early and too often, but you care about the characters. You care about them surviving. And again, it just, everyone kind of gives it their all. And, and he seems like the kind of filmmaker who people like, because I've noticed a couple repeating cast members. I mean, uh, Rory Wilton is also in the werewolf movie. Uh, the, the actor whose name I don't know, but he plays Striner. He is also in that, uh, playing a completely different character. Uh, that is, that is Tim Cartwright. Tim Cartwright. Thank you. So yeah, I, I, again, I think there's, uh, yeah, a lot of passionate, ambitious people making these movies. And I mean, I was, I was looking at Steed's Instagram today, or pardon me, his, uh, Twitter and he's already got, I mean, again, freeze just came out in January, I think on VOD platforms. And he's already got another film that's, I think, in post-production and another one he's filming. Like, this guy doesn't stop. Do you have any final thoughts, Joseph? You know, not really. Um, you know, I, I thought this was, a, this was, you know, a fun film to watch. It's, you know, again, um, there were some really great elements of it. It was certainly better than one we had watched before. <laughs> um, and, yeah, and... Uh, you know, uh, again, I appreciated the, the, the ambition and the scale and the scope that they, they attempted with this film, consi even considering, you know, the limited budget that they had. Yeah. One, uh, one last thing I wanted to point out, I forgot, I've got in my notes here, I forgot to mention it, is the boat scenes were shot on the uh, SS Great Britain, which is docked in Bristol Harbor in England. And the reason I find that fun is because obviously my wife is from a small town just south of Bristol. When I met her, she was living in Weston Supermare, which is again, very close to Bristol. And I remember seeing the SS Great Britain. I don't think I went aboard, but I remember being down in the harbor, walking around with her and seeing it there. And so, uh, yeah, I just thought that was the, the nerd in me thought, oh, I've seen that place. Interesting. You know? And I'll say Charlie <laughs> Steeds, if you're listening, I will be in uh, Bristol in September. And if you are there and you are not working, I will buy you a beer. That is a promise. I will even buy you food. Which, let's face it, as artists, how can you turn that down? But for real, though, if you are listening, I will do that. This is when he files a restraining order. Right, right. <laughs> oh, man. I mean, I'd at least try to get a free meal out of it, then file the restraining order if it was me. But <laughs> who am I to speak? Now that you've said that, that's probably how it'll go. That's fine. I think that's all we have to say about Freeze. But we will say, check it out, folks. Again, if you listen to this show, you like spooky movies, you like horror movies, you could do a lot worse. I, I, I really do recommend you check it out. It's streaming for free on Tubi, uh, but I believe it's the only the standard definition version. If you want high def, you got to pay to rent it. Uh, and I think it starts at $12.99 on Google Play in Canada uh, for to purchase. I think it's $14.99 for HD. I'm going to pick up a copy. I'm, I'm broke right now, but I'm going to pick up a copy. I really enjoyed it. And as we always say, please do not pirate independent films. We don't endorse piracy at all. But if you're going to do it, go pirate Marvel, go pirate that terrible new spy movie on Apple Music or on iTunes or whatever the hell it's called, Apple Plus, whatever, the one with Captain America. Apparently it's shit. So if you're going to pirate something, pirate that. But again, we encourage you not to. Independent films, every dollar you spend on independent film is a vote for more independent film. If you don't buy these things, if you don't pay to rent them, or you watch the ads when they play on Tubi, these filmmakers don't, don't get paid, and that means there won't be more movies. It's important we support them with our attention as well as our dollars. And that is uh, Uncle Bruno get off his soapbox now. Oh, Joseph, I almost forgot. We have an email we have to read on here. We have an we email? We have an email, yes. People are emailing us. That's amazing. A person. A. Let's, let's slow down. 
Hey, okay. Person is Person emailing, is emailing us. us. So this email is from our listener, Sharona. And the email is entitled, My Take on the Outwaters. And of course, we talked about the Outwaters a couple episodes back. That's Robbie Banfitch's uh, found footage horror flick, which funny enough, Charlie Steeds hated, which he was very candid about on his Twitter. Sharona says, Hello, as promised, I am here to spout my theories. I went through several, including something very similar to Joe's hallucination theory, until I had the found footage realization as well. But I think the gas mask slash restricted area sign were intentional, and it's easy to go, oh, aliens, case closed. But this film is too cerebral for it to be just aliens, at least in my opinion. Now, at one point, Robbie states, Robbie starts telling one of the girls, I can't remember which, about a ball of light that stretched out, then folded back in on itself. Later, he would see a very bright line of light, and then the scene would rapidly shift to something else. This leads me to believe that those lights were gateways into different dimensions or parallel universes. My belief is that the loud thunder-like booms were a government experiment, perhaps testing quantum mechanics, that managed to open a portal into somewhere. The scene where Robbie and Angela are attacked by the tentacle things made me believe that the weird, screaming, snake-like things were perhaps severed tentacles from the denizens of this other place. In true cosmic horror fashion, these otherworldly creatures, possibly taking offense to losing limbs, invade the fragile minds of the four friends who happen to be caught in the middle of this experiment gone wrong, causing them to murder each other. Or maybe they targeted Robbie specifically for some reason, and he killed everyone else and then himself. Either way, the pesky humans are no longer an issue. Perhaps the only time they could adequately penetrate his mind is when those portals were opened, and the water-slash-birthing scenes, because it definitely gave me birthing vibes, are Robbie entering his own world again. I'm probably missing things, but for the moment, that's what I have. Thanks for reading this essay of an email, and let me know what you think. Sharona, I, I, mean, I, I think you, I think it's a perfectly viable theory. What do you think, Joseph? I mean, it seems to tie together all the loose ends, you know, I mean, my initial thought as she referenced was, um, you know, the, the whole hallucinogen thing. But as we talked about on that, that, that episode, the camera was picking up stuff that, you know, that was really weird. <laughs> so like, that's not a hallucination going through the camera. So, so this, this theory certainly ties everything together. Um, so I buy it. Yep. Yep. I think that's as good a theory as any. Sharona, thank you so much. And if you want to send us a theory or you want to send us a message, shoot us an email at weirdtogethershow at gmail.com. That's weirdtogethershow at gmail.com. One last thing before we go, all the music on this show is composed and performed by The Revenants. The Revenants are a project of Elliot Wilder, a Boston-based musician, and you can find his music streaming everywhere. You get your tunes courtesy of Night Harvest Recordings, and Night Harvest Recordings is the Ghost Story Guys house label. Again, that's The Revenants, and you can find them streaming everywhere. You get your tunes. Thanks, as always, for joining us, folks. We'd love, love, love to have you listening. If you could give us a five-star review anywhere you can, it would sure help. Tell your friends about the show. Uh, but most of all, we just appreciate the fact that you're listening. And until next time, remember, we're weird. And you're weird. So why not be weird together? See you next time. Let me ride.